You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. This third chapter, as we think together tonight on this subject, three supports for the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Now, that is a long message title, but that says exactly what I'm going to be speaking about in these next few moments. Three supports for the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. I had a preacher friend who told me uh, about a month and a half ago that the only way for a church to grow would be to simply find out what people wanted to hear, and then to preach on those subjects. And uh, he said, if you'll just do that, he said, you'll just go out and just take a census and ask people what they want to hear, and then you just tell them basically what they want to hear. He said, people will just flock to your church. I said, but what about all the great doctrines, the great truths of the Christian faith and Scripture? He said, oh, Tom, he said, listen, in days gone by, it was popular to teach and to preach on the issues of Christian doctrine. But he said, that is not this generation. He said, this generation is is more into how they feel and uh, what their future is, and and, uh, they're into, you know, meeting the needs of everyday life. And he said, I just don't think that doctrine is pertinent to that. My response to him was very simple. I said, let me tell you something. Telling people what they want to hear may make them happy while they sit in the pews, but when they get in the trenches and are involved in real, genuine struggles of life, genuine spiritual warfare, spiritual pablum is not going to help them then. They must have a reservoir of truth from which to draw. And those truths are the basic truths that are involved in the doctrines of the Christian faith. As I've said before, Christian doctrine is like the skeleton in your body. You have a lot of other things that are in your body, but without the skeleton, you have no leverage. You can't walk anyplace. Your body would have no cohesiveness. And so that is the reason, as we go through these books of the Bible, that I preach through these books, uh, a verse or a passage at a time, and we just move through the Scripture, just right straight through a book like we're doing now, the book of Galatians, under this theme, how to employ and enjoy your freedom in Christ. Because you see, when you get to a tough issue, you can't dodge it. On the other hand, you can't just pick up the things you'd like to preach about all the time and preach on those and leave all the other great truths of the Scripture out. And so that's the reason we're moving through these books of the Bible. Lord willing, if you are a member of First Southern very long, we'll go through literally every book of the Bible in this fashion. So tonight we're going to be thinking about three supports for this Christian doctrine. Salvation by grace through faith. And I'm speaking there about the fact that we are not saved by works, as the legalists would say, nor are we just saved by... Um, just uh, believing that there's a God in heaven and forgetting everything else the Bible, was, the Bible teaches as the 
antinomians would say, and we studied that last Sunday, those who are against all the laws of the Old Testament. But we're saved by the grace of God through faith, that is, by putting our trust in Jesus. We're not saved by keeping the law. And, of course, the Galatians, uh, they had a unique problem, and they believed that you were saved by trusting in Jesus, but that you kept your salvation by doing the works of the law. And, of course, the Apostle Paul is pointing out that whatever it takes to save you is what it takes to keep you. And if you believe you're kept in right relationship with God by the works of the law, then you are no better. You have supplanted the grace of God. You're no better than the person who says you're saved by the works of the law in the first place. And so we're thinking together about salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. It's trusting in Christ Jesus alone. And tonight, three supports for this doctrine, salvation by grace through faith. So stand with me if you will, please. And I want to read to you, beginning with verse 13. Verses 13 and 14 were a part of our text last Sunday evening, but I want to include them for the purposes of this thought, uh, and we're going to read down through verse 18. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now notice these verses, which I'm about to read. They are, for many people, so difficult. How many of you have read the book of Galatians before? Just, I mean, you, you say, yes, I've read the book of Galatians. All right. Many people who have read the book of Galatians have never move through this next passage slowly and thoughtfully, and the result is they don't have the foggiest notion what it means. And so in these next few moments, we're going to seek to find the true meaning as the Lord God intended for us to have it in these passages. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. It's not just your casual devotional reading on uh, Monday morning, is it? For as the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, how many people here this evening, honestly, would say, Brother Tom, I want to tell you something. I really made a deep, definite study of this passage of Scripture, and I feel very content that I have found the mind of God, the heart of God on this matter. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you would say, however, Brother Tom, I have read that passage of Scripture. I may have read it many times in my life, but I'm really not sure exactly why the Apostle Paul includes this in this letter to Galatians. How many of you would say that is my case? I mean, by the uplifted hand. All right, that's most of us here this evening. All right. Now, what he has in this passage is, or has for us, is three supports. For this doctrine, salvation by grace through faith. All right? Now, let me remind you, before we pray together, that in the first 13 or 14 verses, the Apostle Paul labels those 
who are Galatianistic in their thinking. That is, who believe you're saved by grace, but kept by your works. And here are the words that we use to describe these verses. He said, first of all, you are foolish. Secondly, you are forgetful. Thirdly, you are fleshly. Fourthly, you are faithless. Fifth, you are foundationless. And finally, sixth, you are a false prophet. That is, you'll go out telling people the wrong message. Now, right along behind that, then he says, let me explain to you by giving you three solid supports. Let me make it clear to you that we are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. And so that is the subject matter at hand this evening. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. I pray you would open your heart to us so that we might come to understand the deep riches of this passage of Scripture. And Father, I pray that you would place this in the heart of each person here this evening. So when they are tempted to cast aside this doctrine, when they are tempted to think, well, it is my good behavior that is going to determine whether I am in right standing with God. Father, I pray that they would go back to this passage and realize once again that we are saved by your grace when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus and trust in him alone. That is not by the works of our flesh that we will ever be made righteous. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that the truth of that would burst in our hearts this morning or this evening. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I believe that many people here this evening know the difference between a contract and a covenant. Many times when you uh, do business in our modern world, you do business on the basis of a contract. Now, a contract has in it specific terms. They're spelled out in the contract. And uh, it tells you that if you live up to these terms, then you may receive the benefit of the following. You are purchasing a house or you're purchasing a car or whatever. But if you violate the terms of that contract, then you forfeit the house or you forfeit the car, whatever it is that is involved in the contract. Now, that is a contract. I'm sorry to say that uh, I'm e even read and have been for the last 10 or 15 years about couples that enter into marriage by making a contract. And in this marriage contract, they say, you know, if he does this and this and this and this, well, we'll stay married. But if not, we won't be married. And he says, well, if she does the following, we'll be married. If not, then we won't be married. And marriage was never meant to be a contractual relationship. But that is a contract. A contract has terms. When you breach those terms, then the contract is annulled, or the scripture word here is disannulled. It's put aside. And then there is the term covenant. And a covenant is far different than a contract. Because when a covenant is entered into, it is entered into once and for all. It has no stipulations. It is a covenant relationship. Now, in the Old Testament, we read about covenant. The word covenant itself has in it this sense of something being cut. In fact, they would usually use the term, we're going to cut covenant with someone. Now, why would it have the word cutting in it, this, this uh, phrase covenant? Because you see, in days gone by, for instance, let's say when two men were to enter into a covenant relationship. 
they would literally saw an animal in two, nose to tail. You would have two halves then. They would place one over here and then another one on this side. They would walk around them in sort of a figure eight, and then they would stand in between those two halves of that ox or whatever it was that was there. They would generally share various tokens of this covenant. Uh, many times it would be one of the following. They would exchange cloaks. That was a way of saying, I give you my identity, you take upon, uh, and I take upon myself your identity. They would exchange belts. I give you my strength and weakness, I take to me your strength and weakness. They would exchange swords often. Uh, your enemies are mine, my enemies are yours. And of course you see that salvation is a covenant relationship, and you see also that marriage is intended to be a covenant relationship, the mutual identity, the mutual strength, the sharing of life, you see. And then these two individuals would look at both walls of flesh. They would call it a wall of flesh. This half of the animal over here, this half of the animal over on this side. They would look at both walls of flesh and they would say, may God do this and more to me or thee. If either one of us violate or break this covenant, it was entered into once and for all. That is a covenant. Now, when a covenant was entered into, it was generally considered that the two people who were entering into the covenant were equal. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture in which the Lord God enters into a covenant with Abraham. But because Abraham is not God's equal... And Abraham has no capacity to keep promises because he's a sinful man. God walks among those walls of flesh alone on Abraham's behalf and makes a promise which is forever binding. He makes that promise to Abraham. And you need to understand that in order to understand this passage of Scripture which I read just a few moments ago. So take your Bible and turn with me first of all to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, and I want to show you, first of all, a promise. We speak many times of Israel as the land of promise. Canaan is the promised land. To Canaan's fair and happy land, we sing, I'm bound for the promised land. And many times we sing that as if that were heaven, but that's never meant to be heaven in the Bible. It's meant to be the relationship that we can enter into with Jesus here on this earth, a relationship of surrender. Now... In chapter 13 of Genesis, we find the land that is before them being separated between Abraham and Lot. And you remember Lot took the best part, ultimately ended up in Sodom, and Abram was left with that which didn't look too good. But notice verse 14, The Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall the seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, in the breadth of it, I will give it unto you. Now that's a promise. But now turn over to, to, verse, uh, to chapter 14, or 15, excuse me, to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is a watershed chapter in the book of Genesis. For God goes beyond promising something to Abram 
and he enters into a covenant with him. Now, notice verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? He said, I don't even have a child. And uh, notice the, what the Lord says in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir. In other words, he said, I have, here is uh, this steward of my house, Eliezer, what about him? He said, that won't work, this shall not be your heir. But he that shall come forth out of your own inward being shall be your heir. Now, Abram was as good as dead at this time. And he brought him forth abroad, he said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall your seed be. Now look, look up here for just a moment. God is saying to Abram, you're old enough to never be able to conceive, and your wife, Sarah. And so, and by the way, some years later when she did conceive, Abram, you remember, was about 100 years of age. And so he says, uh, how can I have children? He said, you are going to have seed born to you. He said, if you could number the stars, he said, you could number the seed that you have. Now, I want you to notice what it says in verse 6. And he believed, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him for righteousness. All right, now look this way again. What he's saying is this. Abraham was brought into right standing with God on the basis of what? Say it. Faith. Say it again. Faith. He was brought into a right standing with God on the basis of his faith. Had the law been given yet? No, the law was 430 years later. But here is Abraham. He is already made right with God by God's grace through what? Say it. Faith. It's through faith. Now, this is what the, the fourth chapter of the book of Romans is about. Here's Abraham. He did, God hadn't laid down a list of rules Abraham has to be that, that before Abraham that he has to obey in order to be right with God. It is by faith that Abraham was made righteous. Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Now listen. In the Jewish faith, and I use the word faith to describe their system of belief here, among Jews, the blessing of Abraham was the same as what we would consider being made right with God by faith. That is the blessing of Abraham. Having the faith of Abraham. Faith so that you would be made right with God. Now, later on in this chapter, and I'll not take the time to read it because we don't have that time this evening, but later on in that chapter, you will see that God instructs Abram to go out and get these different animals. He cuts them in two, makes two walls of flesh, a deep sleep comes on Abram. When he wakes up, Abram's not God's equal. He can't walk in between those walls of flesh and make covenant. So God is walking between those walls himself, and God makes a covenant relationship with him. Notice verse 17, it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace, a burning lamp that passed between the two pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, God, what I'm trying to, to impart to you here is this. 
that Abraham was made right with God on the basis of his faith, not his works. It was his faith. He just took God at his word. You said, but didn't he have works? Yes, but his works were a result of his faith. It was on the basis of God's instruction that Abraham then went out, later on that he and Sarah conceived. And she did not conceive without virtue of that marriage act, the physical union, that they went out engaged in the physical union some years later, and out of him, uh, the Bible says, one as good as dead, there sprang forth a child, all right? And so Abraham was made right with God on the basis of faith. Now, you need to understand that. That is the blessing of Abraham. Now, to be one who has received the blessing of Abraham is to be an individual who's put your trust in Jesus and been made right with God. All right, now, with that in mind, open your Bible again to this book of Galatians and the third chapter. Notice he says here something about the blessing of Abraham. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what I'd like to do in these next few brief moments is share with you three support, three biblical reasons for this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. First of all, it is human reason demands it. Let's just make the, let's make the uh, what I would call the weakest appeal first. It only makes sense. Let me put it that way. It only makes sense to say that that is the way a person enters into right standing with God. That is by faith. Why do you say that? All right, look with me at verse 15. Brothers, I speak after the manner of men. What he's saying here, he says, let me just, let, let's just talk about the business world for a minute. After the manner of men, let's just talk about the marketplace for a moment. Though it, even if it were a man's covenant, let's say that, a, that, that two men entered into a covenant. Once that covenant is established, though it be confirmed, no man disannuls or adds thereto. He says, in other words, even among men, when a covenant is agreed upon, nobody can add something to that covenant and nobody can strike it out. And so he says, that's the way it is even in our world among men, not even mentioning God. And then look at verse 18. He says, not only is it a covenant which cannot be broken, and every man understands that, he said it is an inheritance, and you can't earn an inheritance. How do you receive an inheritance? An inheritance becomes yours not because you earn it, it becomes yours as a gift. That's why it's called an inheritance as opposed to a wage. It, is, it comes to you as a, a gift, and it can't be earned. So notice what he says in verse 18. He says, if the inheritance is of law, in other words, if your right standing with God came by law, then it is not according to the promise of God. But you see, God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right, look up here again. What do we say? We're saying that a person is saved by grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing or no one else. You can't add baptism to it. You can't add sacraments to it. You can't add works to it. You come as a guilty sinner and you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And you receive as a gift from God forgiveness, cleansing, eternal, abundant life, all that we talk about as being salvation. Now, you'll just need to hang on to find out exactly 
what, where the law figures in on this. In fact, I'm going to deal with that Sunday morning in the, next, the last portion of this chapter. But salvation is by grace of God through faith plus nothing. Salvation is the same as this blessing of Abraham because blessing, uh, the blessing of Abraham was that God saw his faith and gave him right standing with him. God saw that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So salvation is the same as the blessing of Abraham. Now, we're saying there are three reasons, three supports for this doctrine. First of all, we said just the human intellect demands it because it is a covenant relationship. And because of the covenant relationship, even in the market system, men don't violate a covenant. And secondly, it's a covenant, an inheritance, and you can't earn an inheritance. So the first reason to say that uh, it is by grace through faith is that just the only logical thing to say. Now, I have friends who don't believe that. They think that's illogical to say, for instance, that you come to God by grace through faith. They believe that you ought to have to earn it. What they do not understand is that is the most illogical statement. If they would take time to read the first portion of the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, they would discover that if you believed you could earn your salvation or even keep your salvation by doing good works, you would have done something that no one else who ever walked the face of the earth has ever done. You would have made God indebted to you. God would be owing you salvation because you had worked for it. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here who believes that God would ever be a debtor to a mere mortal of his own creation? Of course not. And so it is not logical to say that you have to work for your salvation. It is worldly because we like to make people work for what they get. But if you had to work for your salvation, nobody here could ever do it, could ever get it because in order to work for it, you'd have to be absolutely perfect because if you, break one, if you break one of the laws, you might as well have broken all of the laws. You're a lawbreaker, and the wages of sin is death. So human logic demands it. All right, secondly, not only human logic, it is a matter of the heaven, what I want to call the heavenly record. That is, God established it. It's not something that, that we just figured out ourselves. God established it. Look with me, if you will, please, at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now, notice that he said not, and to seeds as of many. Now, what does that phrase mean? All right, it means this. He's not going to, to have people who come from other genealogies than the faith genealogy. The only, the, when he's talking about the seed here, he's not just talking about the physical seed of Abraham. He is talking about those who trust in Jesus and that alone. That's the one characteristic. That's why he doesn't say, and see. Now, you uh, students, for instance, over the university, you may run across someone who says to you, well, I believe that all roads lead to heaven. If a man is sincere, if a man is dedicated, if a man does his best, I mean, he's going to get to heaven. He may be uh, Muslim, he may be uh, Buddhist, he may be a Confucianist, he may believe in some other kind of religion, but if he's really sincere, if he's really dedicated, well, he's going to ultimately end up in heaven. Well, now, if that is the case, then Jesus is a liar, and if Jesus is a liar, 
nobody who calls himself a Christian is going to go to heaven. So if you say Muslims are going to go to heaven by being sincere and dedicated, Buddhists are going to go to heaven by being sincere and dedicated, then what you're saying in the same breath, breath is Christians are not going to go to heaven. Why? Because you don't have a Savior. Why? Because your Savior, Jesus, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, if that is not true, Jesus is a liar. If Jesus is a liar, his death on the cross was simply the death of another mere mortal man, and it didn't know more than the death of any man for you. So a lot of people don't understand that. They think, well, you know, I just believe if you're sincere, you're dedicated, you do your best, you're going to go to heaven. If that is true, then no Christian is going to go to heaven because Jesus would have been made a liar. See, the heavenly record is this. To Abraham and to his seed were the promises of God made. He didn't say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, which is Christ. Someone used to say, uh, I believe it was Dr. Crystal down at First Baptist Dallas. Many years ago, he would say in his inimitable fashion, oh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, the truth of the matter is, if God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Because you see, the heavenly record is that it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So not only does human reason just if you just think about it for a little bit, not only human reason demands it, the heavenly record demands it. Now, let's look at one other thing. The historical reality supports this whole issue, this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, the historical reality. Look at verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that covenant was made with Abraham 430 years before the law. By the way, let me ask you a question. Did God ever tell Abraham that the children of Israel were going to wander in the wilderness in a strange land? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go back to that 13th chapter of Genesis. He says, you're going to wander in a land that is not your own. Then you're going to be brought out. Of, so God already told him, he says, Abraham, this is going to happen to your, to your physical offspring one of these days. Your children, they're going to wander in the land of Egypt. Now, what he's saying here is this. He's saying what God established with Abraham, he did not make void 430 years later by giving the law. So the historical reality is this. Salvation by grace through faith plus nothing was in force, we know at least 430 years before the law, and the truth of the matter is I believe you can go all the way back to God picturing it in the Garden of Eden with the sacrifice, I believe, of the lamb there in the Garden of Eden. Now, a lot of people say, well, what happened was this. Um... God tried that out with Abraham. It didn't work. And so he gave law, and that didn't work. And so finally he sent his prophets, or then he sent his prophets, and they tried to shake everybody up, and that didn't work. And so finally he sent Jesus, who died on the cross. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. Can you not see that in reality, 
Jesus' death on the cross is no more effective than any of the others if you're looking for effect as the evidence of whether something is right because there are a lot of people who will never trust in Jesus. So the question of whether something is right has nothing to do with what seems to you to be human or empirical evidence. It is based upon what God said. And what God has said all the way through this is that man is saved by grace through faith plus nothing. The law coming along later didn't change that. God didn't say, I'm throwing that away. There's a whole new set of circumstances. That law just just impressed us even further with our sinfulness. The judges coming, the kings coming, the prophets coming, that impressed us even more with our sinfulness until the point that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. The man was crying out in his total helplessness. Jesus was born. And God said it is salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. Now, I realize this is a rather heavy passage of Scripture to move through when you've had a hard, a long, hard day, and I've had, you know, a similar day, and you're trying to concentrate, and you're saying, Brother Tom, can you t- d- does this really apply to my life? Yes, it does. Let me show you how. You're going to come a time in your spiritual pilgrimage when the devil is going to convince you that you are not in right standing with God in terms of being saved, in terms of your salvation. If he doesn't convince you, at least he's going to try to convince you. And that conviction will come to you something like this. Think how bad you've been. Think how messed up you are. It may be that you had great plans for your life with Christ and there's been some failure. Maybe there's been a moral failure in your life. Maybe some sin. Maybe, maybe something you never thought in a million years would happen to you has happened to you. And the devil will take that out as a club and he'll begin to beat you over the head and he'll say, listen, you see, the problem with you is that you are not really God's child. The problem with you is that you started out right. Yes, you, you were saved one time. You trusted in Jesus. You invited him to come into your heart. You repented of your sin. And you were right with God, but now you have thrown all that aside because your work's evidence that uh, you didn't prize that salvation. You haven't been treating Jesus right And so now if you die, you are going to go to hell. Now listen, friend, what I have just described is exactly what the Christians in the churches in Galatia were believing, that you were saved by grace, but from that moment on you hung on to your salvation by doing good works, by behaving right. And what the Apostle Paul wants you to see is this, that you are free in Christ. You're not free to disobey the law in the sense that that does... That doesn't please God, that hurts your relationship with God, but does not destroy destroy your sonship or the fact that you are a child of God. God desires for his children to serve him out of a heart of love because their hearts have been changed by his grace. Suppose I was going on a trip and I said to my wife, Jeannie, I'm going on a trip and before I leave, here are my demands. First of all, I want you to have no other men before me. I don't want you to have any eyes for any other men. I don't want you to even think about having any kind of relationship with anybody else other than me. 
I don't want you to use my name carelessly. I want you to always speak of me respectfully. I want you to take a, a, a period of time, ever, out of every seven days, I want you to dedicate one to just thinking about me. And I'm insisting that you do this. And so on down the list. And I give her a set of rules. You know what would happen? I think that would offend my wife deeply. You know why? Because my wife already loves me. My wife doesn't have eyes for any other man besides me. My wife already speaks in loving terms, in affectionate terms, in respectful terms about me, just as I would about her. You know why? Because she loves me. And one day at a marriage altar, we entered into a covenant relationship. And she doesn't do that because she's in the law. She does that because her heart is given over to me in our marriage relationship. Now, marriage is a picture of salvation. God wants you to live a life of victory. He wants you to live a life of joy. He wants you to live a life of freedom. That doesn't mean that you go out and just simply break all the laws. What it does mean is this, that once you say I do to Jesus and Jesus says I do to you, a change takes place in your heart and you become a one God person, just like she's a one man woman. You become a one God person and your heart is turned to God and you desire to serve God. And what happens when you make a mistake? Do you say, well, I must not be rightly related to God because the way I've been living, the things I've been doing. And that's when you need to remember back to this windy, cold Wednesday evening, First Southern Baptist Church, Dell City, Oklahoma, the seventh day of October 1992, and you need to dig down into your spiritual war chest and you need to pull up some weapons and say, wait a minute, Satan, you can't beat me over the head with that because, you see, it is established in the Word of God. There are at least three reasons why, that I can give you for the fact that I am saved because of the grace of God and because I have put my faith in Jesus and in Him alone. Why, it is the only humanly logical thing to say. fact is, the heaven has recorded that that is the way people come to God. And the truth of the matter is, the historical reality is that salvation by grace through faith was on the scene long before the law ever came and will be here long after men have determined that they want to disobey the law. It is salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. You are saved and you are kept by the grace of God. Amen? And so that's why you need to know these scriptural doctrines. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Heads are bowed. And eyes are closed. I'm going to ask our counselors to come here to this altar. I'd like for all of our counselors to be here. It could be that you've never experienced this wonderful salvation by the grace of God. Maybe you've always thought that you were just always a Christian because you went to church, you did good work, you did the kind of things you thought a person ought to do. It never occurred to you that you weren't on your way to heaven. But you realize, friend, that you are naturally on your way to hell the only, because the wages of sin is death. The only way you could have eternal life is to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith as your Savior. And I would urge you to do that this evening. I would urge you when we stand in just a few moments, when we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, you decide tonight to follow Jesus. You step to an aisle, make your way forward, find one of these counselors, put your hand in there as they look. I want to trust Jesus, or I want to follow Jesus with my life. If you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you to come. I'm going to ask others who've made that decision or similar decisions in recent days in our church. Maybe you've been baptized or joined our church from a sister church and we've not introduced you to your new church family. I'm going to ask you to come forward as well, even those who are baptized tonight. You come forward as well and be seated over here to my left, to your right, and we want to introduce you to your church family in just a few moments. Could be that God's speaking to your heart about joining this church. 
well, you ought to come and make that decision tonight. Find a counselor and say, we want to come as a family. I want to come as a single person, university student, college student, high school student. As a mom or dad, I want to come be a part of this church family. It could be that the devil's really been working you over, over this whole issue that you have been thinking, well, if I'm sincere and dedicated, God thinks I'm wonderful. If I'm not, God thinks I'm terrible. Listen, God's attitude toward you is an attitude of unconditional love he loves you so much he sent Jesus to die for you. Now, he doesn't love your sin. He's, your sin cost his son his life. But Jesus died on the cross for you. And it could be that you need to come to this altar and say, Dear God, I realize the very things I'm involved in right now, the things that put Jesus on the cross, I want to have them cleansed from my heart and my life. I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a church member. I want to get right with Christ tonight. Well, this is your invitation. The altar is open. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. We're going to stand. I would urge you to come on the very first stanza of this chorus. Father in heaven, I pray your Holy Spirit, moving in power right now, will bring from different corners of this auditorium people to say yes to you.